Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Dr. Santosh. I'm your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. A little bit of Santosh after dark tonight. Oh yeah, thanks to this flu or, or flu-like virus. The show. How do I introduce our topic? Uh, well, I think the best way to talk about this topic is that we're getting a little bit meta. We talk about travel or we talk about medicine, but this is the study of the study of medicine. This week, let's get metaphysical, physical, I'm gonna get metaphysical. Of course, what we're talking about is epidemiology or the study of studying diseases. There is going to be a little bit of of jargon and hopefully not too many numbers, at least no more than we absolutely have to. But epidemiology is really a pretty old field. In fact, the very first distinctions were drawn even back in time of the ancient Greeks by Hippocrates, who claimed the difference between epidemic and endemics. Now, epidemics you hear nightly from you know whatever news station you like to watch based on whatever particular disease is in fashion at the moment. Uh, Most recently, I believe it's been Zika. Yeah, Zika is uh, actually turning from an epidemic into a word beyond that called a pandemic. It's sweeping across the world. Start with epidemic. Epidemic is when something has spread beyond where it should go, right? And then endemic is a word that we use for this disease belongs here or is native to this particular area. 
So I gave the example uh, of Ebola. Ebola there is endemic to very small areas in Western Africa, and it, it actually pops up a case here, a case there every now and again. But when it spreads outside of the borders of uh, your kind of contained area where you're used to seeing Ebola and new people are put at risk that have never before been put at risk of Ebola, now it has spread to epidemic proportions. Think of epidemic as a disease that's visited upon a population and endemic as a disease that lives within it. So you get a cold right before you're about to leave on vacation. You and the cold are endemic to the area. The second you step on a plane, you are visiting yourself upon another nation. And if anybody in that nation gets sick and it starts to spread, that would be an epidemic. And if it gets far enough, a pandemic. Yeah, that pandemic, that word is for spreading across the entire globe. So influenza is a great example of a yearly pandemic which sweeps across the entire globe. Most notably in 1918. It did a lot more than sweep. It vacuumed. (laughs) Ah, that bastard. You know how I know it vacuumed? Because for most people who caught it, it sucked. Oh, bam. I knew there was going to be some sucking in that pun. But I didn't <laughs> Phrasing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I apologize. Uh, so what is epidemiology? It's specifically the study of patterns, causes, and effects of health and disease conditions in defined populations. It's basically what most public health policy is formed on. Its results inform policy decisions, and it's really where we started the whole evidence-based medicine movement by identifying risk factors for disease, targets for medicine, and a lot of in-the-field collecting of data. So there's a lot to say about epidemiology, and I think, well, usually... I like to give a little bit of history, and then we go off and running into our our episode. And and this this week is absolutely not different at all. Oh, the twist is that there's no twist. (laughs) Did you hear that, audience? Did you feel it? What a twist! (laughs) So So, before before we talk about uh, the the characters involved in building you know, epidemiology and evidence-based medicine, I want everyone listening to kind of imagine being a doctor pre-epidemiology, thinking about a disease in terms of what you have experienced with your patients and maybe people that you've talked to, a couple of uh, case reports and case series that you've read about, such that you got kind of a vague picture of what a particular disease does. But you don't have anything where someone has said, oh, this population of people or this hundred people or these thousand people uh, all came down with this and this is what they look like and this is what they did and this is what treatment helped and what treatment didn't help. It was a very piecemeal way of diagnosing and treating disease. So let's go back in time to roughly 1800s models of disease. Imagine that you're British, because truthfully, at this point in time, you either were or you were ruled by them. 
Cuts a little close to home, Doretsky. Cuts a little <laughs> close to home. I'm just trying to make sure everybody's in the right frame of mind. Go for it. And, and deep within the Soho district in London, there's been a terrible outbreak of disease. This is around 1854. And everyone and their neighbor was coming down with cholera. The waters were, by and large, mostly polluted, either with horse dung or the newly industrializing city. And physicians of the day really were stumped as to what could be going on. There was a general theory that people were getting sick from bad air or miasma. Yeah, this is... Miasma was a really popular explanation for a lot of diseases, by the way. The plague was spread by miasma. Uh, Yeah, so you had a bunch of people in London with diarrhea, horrible watery diarrhea that could kill you in a day. Now, of course, the government had a vested interest in keeping at least enough of these people alive to pay taxes. So a whole bunch of folks began investigating what might be ways to treat this miasma but one physician well a couple but one for the purposes of our study is (laughs) said to himself i know nothing i can't trust this and do you know that physician's name santosh uh well you you've told me and uh, you're so happy that this is this man's name but for those of you guys who love uh, game of thrones this real-life gentleman was Jon Snow. Jon Snow. <laughs> Long before Kit Harington's charming representation of everyone's favorite Stark, or is he, uh, there was an anesthesiologist, same specialty as Dr. Proz, an anesthesiologist by the name of Jon Snow, who also knew nothing but was determined to find out. So he started going town to town, district to district, and interviewing everybody, asking, what do you eat? When did you first get sick? How many people in your house have died? Who has died? In what order? What were they eating and drinking? And just really getting very invasive. And as he did, marking these houses on a map one by one. Um, And it was known as his ghost map. (laughs) Not because everybody on it died but because he was tracing the disease and he was trying to trace it back to its source and each one of these was another clue into the past to the beginning yeah and he was doing you know sourcing of the infection before people ever realized that germs caused infection and so you know, just with a little bit of common sense, even not knowing anything about germ theory and bacteria causing the illness, he was doing a uh, source trace for the uh, for the infectious disease before we even knew about the concept of infection. That's right. In fact, it'd be at least another five or six years until germ theory by Louis Pasteur was introduced to the world of medicine. So he had absolutely no clue what could be causing this other than not bad air. And eventually his ghost maps suggested that the true culprit might be polluted water. One of the things he noticed was that all the people who were sick seemed to be sick around 
a couple specific districts and one or two wells, except for one group, one neighborhood alone out of all the places he investigated had no illness. And wow. do you know why not? Uh, I, I don't. Tell me why. Because that district was the beer district and the workers were at a brewery. So Jon Snow said to himself, they were probably drinking so much beer that they're not drinking water. And that, more than anything, suggested to him that the infection was in the water. Because it was the only element shared in common, or not in common, by all the surrounding people. This is just a gorgeous piece of detective work. And it all began with the principal uh, premise, I should say, of all of science, which is I don't know. So eventually, and it took a pretty long time for him to convince people, but he did trace it back to a faulty cesspool. And the brewery workers weren't getting sick because they had their own source of water inside the brewery, and he was right. They did drink mostly beer and hung around the beer neighborhood. (laughs) But once Jon Snow finally convinced enough people, they went to the local pump, that had been contaminated, and simply took the handle off the pump. People were physically unable to pump water from a handleless pump, and everyone started getting better, and thus was founded modern epidemiology. Beautiful. So this was more of a a descriptive or a mapping study rather than using a bunch of numbers, you know, to try to crunch out what was going on. You know, he traced it just like Sherlock Holmes would hunt down Moriarty. So... Beautiful, beautiful work. So let's talk a little bit about some of the techniques that are still used today by epidemiologists. And of course, I'm going to want to get into a little bit more history. But before we jump to our next historical example, why don't we talk about contact tracing? You had mentioned that before as as something, Santos. Can you tell us about it as a technique? Yeah, so... Um... I'll use Ebola again as a uh, example here, is that a good epidemiologist as a detective can really go from house to house, source to source, you know, kind of say hello, introduce themselves, talk about that person's daily habits, where they've been, and kind of trace back from victim to victim of the disease until you form a chain of events which goes back to you know hopefully one or two or a few original uh, infected individuals in the case of infection or if it's something like toxic exposure um, you know an, an individual who would be spreading that particular toxin so it's not much different i think at all from what john snow was doing it's just that we have a little bit more sophisticated tools now. We have laboratory studies that we can use to actually uh, test people for various illnesses, you know, in their blood or in their saliva or urine or whatever it may be. Um, and you also have big, giant computers, which you can use to actually data crunch and number crunch when you have an outbreak of you know, thousands of people. And you can start narrowing down the source of your outbreak or your epidemic in more of a hurry than what John had to do, which was to go house by house by house. Exactly. Now, 
one of the things, and if you would like to hear more about that story, it's you can read a book known as The Ghost Map, The Story of London's Most Terrifying Epidemic and How It Changed Science, Cities, and the Modern World by Stephen Johnson. <laughs> Who is not the same Stephen Johnson from The Syndrome. So we're making all sorts of pop culture, real life crossovers right now, which is what makes this so much fun oh, yeah. because we're really getting meta on meta on meta as we talk about the study of the study of diseases, diseases. <laughs> Do it more meta, more meta. I love so it. a traditional model of infectious disease causation that has since developed is known as the epidemiologic triad. Which means in order to have a disease, you need three things. You need an agent, a host, and an environment in which the host and agent are brought together. Okay? Makes sense. You need, some, you need something to infect, somebody to get infected, and a place for it to happen. Now, you can also include a vector, which is the organism that actually transmits the infection by conveying the pathogen from one host to another. A classic example, of course, is every single mosquito-borne disease. The mosquito ingests blood from an infected host. Then it'll feed on another human and transfer it. So in that case, the mosquito... Oh, right. So your skeeters... <laughs> Skeeter. Sorry, your, your mosquito is your vector. The human being would be your host, the actual thing getting transmitted. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your environment would be wherever a, uh, a mosquito can live. So this is where, you know, for instance, when we talk about global warming, we say, oh, man, you know, the mosquitoes are getting out of control because of climate change. It's because the, the mosquitoes which carry a particular disease can start living in places which were previously inhospitable because it was too cold. So the environment can expand, leading to a, um, an epidemic. The vector can change or shift, which is a little less common. Your hosts can expand, right? So more humans. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and uh, all of these can kind of go into flux in order to take an endemic disease to epidemic proportions. Exactly. So with that in mind, let's move on to our next study, which, let's see, you know, we're already in our time machine, our way back machine. I'm going to take us a little bit further back because even though Jon Snow was the father of epidemiology, we still were trying to study diseases and their outcomes before the invention of some of the modern tools. So I'm going to take you back to the 1700s, nice. the 1750s. Around the golden age of piracy. <laughs> it's a good time. It's a good time. Because if there's one thing I enjoy more than a Victorian historical fact, it's a tale of pirates. Yar. And in the 1700s, most armies lost more men to disease than to the sword or gun or plank. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So rather than dying in battle, uh, the... No, here in the United States, the Civil War is a fantastic example. Is you know, winter would set in, and you have just a massive amount of humanity just dying to uh, the consequences of being exposed 
you know, horrible weather. A Scottish naval surgeon, James Lynn, was focused on how to decrease the amount of disease in in the men he was assigned to treat. And he had noted that on long ocean voyages, a lot of the sailors would become sick from a disease marked by spongy and bleeding gums, bleeding under the skin, and a lot of weakness. And this was, of course, scurvy, which usually he noted after about four to six weeks at sea. Are you scurvy, dog? Now, he, of course, was looking to air as the source of the disease, which when you're you know, out on the open ocean is not an unreasonable thought. You have dampness of the air, damp living arrangements, and overall life at sea. So he's looking for mold. He's looking at the daily activities. But when he began to look at the diet, he noted that the what they were eating was pretty hard on the digestion, just you know, stale biscuits and salted meat. So he took 12 patients who all had scurvy, and he started describing their symptoms put them all in six groups of two, and gave them little experimental diets like lab rats. (laughs) And, you know, we're talking about a time before there was any kind of thoughts about ethics in human testing. Well, you know, again, each of the groups already had shown symptoms of scurvy. So one group got gruel sweetened with sugar, one got mutton broth, One had pudding, one had boiled biscuits, another barley and raisins, a third rice and currants, some wine, and uh, one group of men were given lemon and oranges to eat on a half, on an empty stomach. You know, I I think I'd prefer lemons and oranges to a half pint of seawater and certainly spoonfuls of vinegar, but (laughs) eventually... Right. (laughs) Eventually, he noted that the men given lemons and oranges uh, ate them with greediness and really started to improve. So the most sudden and visible effects. And as a result, he made recommendations to the admiral of the British fleet. And then, of course, every man was given a ration of citrus with his with his daily allotment of water and food. Now, an interesting fact is you you know what I said citrus. Right. Do you know where most of the navies of Europe were hanging around in the 1700s? The navies uh, around the 1700s uh, was it India? No, no. Remember, golden age of piracy. So they were all out in the Caribbean. All oh, pirates of the Caribbean, sure. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So. Well, a lot of the main things being imported from these islands and sold to a lot of other places included things like rum and limes. And in an effort to increase the sale of British limes, rather than give oranges or lemons, which is what James Lind had studied, every sailor was given a portion of a lime to suck on, and that is how they became to British sailors came to be known as limeys. <laughs> Are you a limey dog? Absolutely. And, and they did still continue in some small degree to suffer from scurvy because oranges and lemons are actually much better sources of vitamin C than limes. Nice. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's a beautiful little uh, set of info. That's really cool. I, I'm, yeah. I'm 
loving more and more and more how elegant these uh, you know these examinations are before we do anything before we do absolutely anything we'll go back to to our 1800s london which of course was known for being a very smoky time i mean you look really at any depictions of the yeah. of the time period and Industrial it's all revolution in, in england and in london you know they had no idea of any kind of like environmental regulations or anything so exactly you know, let off a bunch of smoke from all those godless machines but now we're going to jump another hundred years into the Industrial Revolution and more close to our time, 1952. All right. All right. So we've been 17, 1800s, and now the 1900s. Smog was not uncommon to London from the 1800s even through today, and it has built up. But on December 5th, 1952, a veil of fog rolled over. The city of London. Whoa. Not that's, uncommon, that's but this particular veil of fog was the start of the deadliest air pollution disaster in British history to date. Okay, the air was initially the color of yellow. It was a yellowish hue and beginning to smell like rotten eggs. After a day, the air had turned green to pea soup and reeked of foul garbage. And this is all you know, documented wow. in the historical record. The visibility got worse. Breathing became painful. This went on for five days, getting progressively worse. By the time the fog left on December 9th, 150,000 people had been hospitalized and 12,000 of them had died from exposure to this air. Oh, dear. Now, this was known as London's Great Smog, and it was immediately and correctly blamed on, if you said coal, ding, 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 number one, recently, and when I say recently, I mean this mystery has only been solved in about the last month or two by a team in China who currently holds the record for most polluted cities with Xi'an and Beijing. One of the hallmarks of this great smog, remember I said, was rotten eggs. And that usually indicates uh, sulfur in the air. That's what gives eggs that funky smell. Right, right, right. And also its toxic effects on humans is particles of sulfur and sulfuric acid. So while studying their own smog, and by extension the great smog, this Chinese team led by Texas A&M's Renyi Zhang... um, demonstrated that under naturally foggy conditions, sulfate can build up inside water droplets due to chemical reactions. And these reactions create sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide. And a lot of this is also what used to happen out of automobiles before smog check regulations. You'd get this out of the back of your car. Wow, okay. So this sulfate that's formed promotes the formation of other particles, which actually pulls fog even denser and makes it more smoggy. And as the water in the fog dries up, the acid and the sulfate becomes sulfuric acid. It gets concentrated, and then you get these gross, brown, hazy-looking particles that coat everything they come into contact with and start eating away at it. Now, interestingly, if there was one silver lining to this great smog, which is another epidemiological 
victory. It's that it kickstarted an environmental movement in the 50s that led to the passage of some of the first clean air laws. Uh, this was in the UK. In the US, it similarly led to seeing what happened there, uh, led to the beginnings of the EPA here to prevent sort of a lot of the typical environmental disasters that pollution and insufficient regulation very often lead to. Let's start looking at how it's kind of used today. So I'm going to give you a couple more terms. And then, Santosh, I'm going to turn the floor over more to diseases and things that you know about as our infectious disease doc and researcher. In addition to contact tracing, another term we like to look at in epidemiology is called spillover. Uh, you know, do you have a pathogen spillover or a spillover event? And again, you may have heard this with Ebola. You may have heard it with Zika. Spillover occurs when a reservoir population, meaning a, a group that usually holds a disease but may not be infected with it. It just transmits it from place to place. Sure. And when they come into contact with a new population that's never been exposed to this disease, that's when you get a spilling over of the infection transmitting from one group to the other. So it could be mosquitoes uh, that hop on a plane, get to a new area, and then start stinging or feeding on people. Or it could be a group of people who have emigrated to a new area and then get a disease that all the locals have had for years and years, but the new folks don't. Um, so that's known as a spillover. We talked about contact tracing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Which is literally just speaking to every contact of an individual who's been infected. And, of course, the main goal of contact tracing is to hunt down the patient zero. Let's talk about patient zeros. And, and Santos, here, I'm going to give this one to you a little bit. Perhaps the most famous patient zero in our lifetime is the patient zero for AIDS. And we, of course, all have our own thoughts as to how this happened. But I think it turns out that a lot of what we've assumed for years and years and years is wrong. So, Santosh, you want to tell us about the myth of patient zero? Yeah, so the myth starts out with uh, a airline steward, I believe, an, an airline attendant who was attributed with being the first person to cross over into the United States and bring with him uh, the HIV virus and 
this person was promiscuous or noted to be promiscuous and flying back and forth between Africa and the United States, uh, I believe also Canada, and would sleep with multiple men, sleep with a lot of men, thousands, thousands. And in this manner, the HIV epidemic spread across the North American continent in a very rapid manner with gay men or men who have sex with men. And this was the first description uh, in the early 1980s of a immunodeficiency or an acquired immunodeficiency, thus AIDS, of gay men. Now, when we're saying that he was, and Santos, he was a Canadian flight attendant. Oh, he was originally a Canadian flight attendant. Yeah, so and, and his story. Across the, con- across the ocean. Yeah, and his story, of course, was was uh, translated into film and the band, and the band played on. Right, right. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, he was accused of being promiscuous, this is not us placing any kind of value judgment. This is a man who proudly declared that he had approximately 250 sexual partners each year. Yeah. <laughs> he was evidently, um, you it's know... quite the man charming. about town. Right, but, you know, good-looking, charming, all this kind of thing. But the thought was that there was just a single person who brought HIV from the African continent over to the North American continent. And this was the guy. This was the person. And uh, he would make these frequent trips over to the west coast of Canada and North America, which is why the first epidemics were described in uh, San Francisco, the state of Washington, and eventually being described um, at UCLA, California, for the first time. Now, while there is no doubt that he was at the center of at least one, if not several, epidemics, he was not the very first person to bring it over. And in fact, a part of the reason he took so much heat for this is he was originally typed as the 57th AIDS patient to reach the CDC's attention. So the CDC was already aware of of AIDS, even though that's not what it was named at the time. So he was billed as case 057 in the file, but since he came from outside California and wasn't even a U.S. resident, as you know, we mentioned he's a Canadian flight attendant, the investigators started referring to him as the out-of-California patient, or patient O for short. And... Of course, a typo led him to being marked as the literal patient zero. Now that we've talked a little bit about these more historical examples, let's let's bring this up into the real world. Right now, of course, epidemiology certainly involves a lot of statistics and numbers that we're mostly leaving out because, frankly, it bores me. It's very important, but... <laughs> and, and that's fair. That's fair to say. Um, you know, b- being passionate about numbers is not really... I don't think in any way, shape, or form is considered to be a forte. I am going to have to bring up at least a couple numbers, if only to put things into context. So the next number that I want to talk about 
as we move on to a more modern take of how diseases are studied, is known as R0. Uh, you know, kind of like you're in an argument with your sibling. R2, R0. That's how it's pronounced. <laughs> yeah. I'll, only if you look at the uh, actual figure, uh, not is usually the starting place for, you know, a particular computation so you'll have an r with a little subscript zero built yeah so it looks like a tiny row ro but uh, now in what we're going to be talking about in epidemiology r naught is a mathematical term that usually is an indication of how contagious any infectious disease is Uh, it's also referred to as the reproduction number that's why r is there as an infection spreads to new people we consider it to be reproducing itself so your r naught tells you the average number of people who you can expect to catch a disease from a single contagious person and of course we would apply this to a population of people who previously were free of infection and haven't been vaccinated so for example if a disease has an r naught of 18 a person who has the disease will be assumed to, on average, transmit it to about 18 other people as long as no one's been vaccinated against it or is already immune to it in the community. Yeah, it's a a safe average, I think. Right. Now, you know, certainly the most obvious way to think of this is any zombie movie ever where the R-naught could be as low as 1% where, you know, the zombie bites somebody and is immediately killed before they can bite anyone else, to as high as, you know, your zombie patient zero with an R-naught of hundreds, if not thousands, with each new person biting X number of people and turning them. Yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. This R-naught value only applies when everyone in a population is completely vulnerable to a disease, meaning no one's been vaccinated, no one's ever had the disease before, and there's no way to control it. Let's put this into some real-world context, and then I promise the last numbers that I will be giving you before <laughs> before we jump back into stories and facts and fun. Don't Wake promise. up, everybody. Yeah, don't, don't promise anything you promise there buddy um so we've talked about i gave you an example of an r naught of 18 for say a zombie movie but is that a real accurate number and and it's not so i figured let me go back and give you an example of the 1918 spanish flu pandemic right and santosh about how many people would you say died as a result of the spanish flu Oh, the Spanish flu took a massive number of lives. Uh, I, I I think it was it, it outstripped, you know, the Holocaust. It outstripped anything that Stalin did. I mean, it was a lot. Of people. That's pretty good. Yeah, it infected an estimated five hundred million people and yeah. killed an estimated twenty to fifty million. Wow. That's okay. Cool. So keeping in mind those numbers, the r naught I took the time to look up of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic was estimated to be in between 1.4 and 2.8. Wow. So just by reaching an r naught of 2, 
this disease was thought to have infected over 500 million people. So you can imagine. Right. And this is why this is why even I can't ignore these numbers. Remember, I said an r naught applies when everyone's vulnerable, no one's been vaccinated, no one's had the disease, and there's no way to control it. Well, that's with the flu. But when swine flu or H1N1 came back in 2009, its r naught value was about 1.5, so almost the same as the flu. But the existence of vaccines and antiviral drugs made the 2009 outbreak much, much less deadly. 203,000 people. The huge difference just from the numbers based on what treatments are available. So why does this matter? Well, let's start looking at, you know, how do things work today? Santosh, what was sort of done epidemiologically from the Ebola or Zika standpoints? Yeah, so Ebola is a great example because it was it was a little bit better contained. But you start off uh, finding a group of of patients that are in danger or hurt or vulnerable to disease. You identify them and you say, okay, we found this population of this population of people who could be vulnerable uh, to, uh, to getting sick. So you start out by saying, okay, we found this many ill people in this village. With everything you know about the infection, how many people sick versus how quickly this particular disease spreads and its infectivity rate and its lethality rate. When you have that information, you can start talking to people on the ground and say, hey, when did you get sick? When did you get sick? Who did you meet with? Who did you talk to? You can start to form a map of how the infection kind of traced its way. And in this case, it traced its way from a tiny, tiny little village close to a river. And you could actually trace back People who would be in the bushmeat industry where they would contract Ebola for, you know, chopping up bushmeat and then traveling up the river to a larger city and distributing that meat. Those people being in contact with all these other human beings and the Ebola being in secretions like their tears and their saliva, their blood and their sweat, pass on Ebola to all the vulnerable new contacts. In case you don't remember, there was a movie a few years back called Contagion, and also a television show called Quarantine, and they they were pretty much the same basic concept about a pandemic that's responded, rapidly occurred, and the CDC and how they respond. And I know you love the CDC a lot. You frequently give them and the WHO shout-outs. So I'm going to give you an example of how it was handled in Hollywood, and then... I want you to tell me sort of the the response and how this was handled in a real-world situation, like with Ebola or Zika. Yeah. So in Contagion, the virus was based off, you know, a combination of Nipah, which is a southeastern respiratory virus, as well as the flu. And the virus is so transmissible that it spreads to new locations around the globe within days. So, plausible or implausible? Oh, absolutely. Flu is a great example of that. Yeah. So, you know, flu, this this setup has already occurred twice recently with the outbreak of SARS in 2003 in Asia and the 2009 H1N1. 
uh, you know, SARS itself spread to 13 countries on three continents in under a month, and H1N1 was around the globe in weeks. So, yeah. you know, this is absolutely, absolutely possible. Without a doubt. But now in the movie Contagion, as the disease rages on, you have scientists in a montage that develop a vaccine in about four months. <laughs> very quick, very, very quick. Indeed. So remind me, Santosh, from the outbreak of Ebola, or even Zika, but you know, from the outbreak of Ebola to our, our talks of an Ebola vaccine, has that been four months? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Closer to years. Years, you say? Well, mm. that's not that. That's true. That's not very fair. Closer to a year. So I'm I'm gonna veer just a tiny bit into the political here, and and feel free to steer me back. But oh, yeah, do. the reality check is. In the case of an entirely new virus or disease emerging, yeah, developing a vaccine that fast would be very unlikely. So Ebola, um, it's just not profitable to really study until it starts affecting who the drug companies want to sell to. And that's been sort of the case of, of Big Pharma for, for years and years. Sure. You know, even, even flu vaccines, which are developed every single year, take about four to six months to create at a minimum. So for a brand new threat to identify a virus, formulate a vaccine, and take the safety of the vaccine into account would all take time. Now, of course, there is some, some talk in Washington these days of uh, kind of deregulating the FDA. And you have to understand that even as slow as the FDA may seem to move by by our standards here in the U.S., compared to even the European agencies, they are just rocketing down their development of new drugs and approving things left and right. And it is their regulation that, you know, sort of puts any sort of safety on most of what can be purchased. Right. Uh, so... You know, I, I try to avoid getting too overtly political on this podcast, but definitely the FDA is something that we really do need, along with the EPA, uh, yeah. both from epidemiological and health preventive standpoints. I have no problem at all with everything you said. That was, that's absolutely correct. Um, okay, so now let's move on to our next Hollywood scenario. In the movie Contagion, they use a process called contact tracing um, by you know tracing the disease through social networks. Yes. Well, we've already said that sounds pretty realistic. So how did it happen in terms of Ebola? So, yeah, the, the first thing that was identified was that there was a village of people who were dying from hemorrhagic fever. Now, contrary to what we heard about in the in the news by and large you actually have a lot of different hemorrhagic fevers in those regions so it's not an easy thing to sit there and go oh yeah of course it was this thing or it was that thing you know it's it's not at all the case where you could blink and say boom that's the you know it was ebola you could have had lhasa you could have audio several things so epidemiological uh, resources were put together uh, <coughs> the WHO uh, the CDC and they went and investigated just to say hey 
what are we looking at here? What is the actual disease that we need to, you know, hunt down? So, at first, they were able to go to the ground and say, okay, we need to do XYZ lab testing first and foremost. And they completed the lab tests and said, oh, okay, of all the hemorrhagic diseases, this is Ebola. Okay, this is what we're dealing with. Then the next thing that they had to do was go to the survivors and say, all right, which one of you guys, you know, was in contact with who? Who talked to who? Who met with who at what time? And you actually start creating this map of people uh, who met with each other, traded with each other, talked with each other, and they were able to create this little, you know, backwards map of, you know, almost like, uh, you know, kind of tracing back the future and looking back into saying, oh, we had one person here who, you know, traded on this particular river and they, uh, you know, they went back to this particular village, that particular villager uh, who, you know, would do trade routes from the jungle, from the deep jungles all the way to here, uh, you know, would, you know, travel this way. And then if you found that particular person, you, you could actually find them and say, oh my gosh, you know, here's, uh, you know, just a fantastic example of one human being or a few human beings, I guess in this case, who were responsible for just, you know, bringing an endemic disease, Ebola, from the jungle all the way to the big city. Boom. Just like that. And, of course, when they're using contact tracing to develop their social media networks, that doesn't mean that they just go check the infected person's Facebook page or Snapchat account. <laughs> Would that it were <coughs> so easy. I mean, they may still do that to see who they're likely to associate with, (laughs) but it doesn't start and end there. So. (laughs) Certainly not. Um, And, you know, there's a few other things that come up in in the movie where, you know, of course, in, in Hollywood, just one senior CDC executive, one field investigator, and a couple scientists are the ones responsible for responding. In the real world, of course, you know, there's large amounts of teams and researchers working on this and coordinating around the globe, along with different doctors, such as Doctors Without Borders and other health organizations. Uh, Additionally, if a vaccine is created, it's given out based on methods that are fair and equitable. So, of course, in the movie Contagion, it's done by a random lottery. Like, uh, you know, everybody will get it eventually. But in the real world, we usually pick based on giving preference to those most susceptible to the infection first. So children, the elderly, the immunosuppressed, uh, then those who might suffer grave consequences from infection, such as pregnant women. Um, And then... First responders get the next doses, nurses, doctors, so on, uh, and then, I guess, lottery winners, which I think is the uh, Republican plan, I mean, which has just been revealed. Uh, ten pages of how to deny medical coverage to lottery winners. 
Well, uh, yeah, that and uh, don't buy an iPhone, I think, somehow will keep you healthy. Well, hey, I have an Android, so great. <laughs> I'm, I'm taken care of. Yo, you've won up Jason Chaffetz already. <laughs> you take that, sir. Um, so and now, of course, we really only touched on the, the barest minimum of what epidemiology does, and it does involve a lot of statistics and meta-analyses and reviewing journals and a whole bunch of things which, if you are interested in, in a very research-heavy kind of career in medicine but don't enjoy sitting at a lab doing bench work, uh, or, hey, you know, writing... Back. What? Hey, you take that back. I said if. I did not say they shouldn't. I simply said if you don't enjoy sitting at a lab doing bench work or lecturing to students in an ivory tower, this would be the the other option, is to go out into the field at the borders where diseases are right up there in your face and occurring and trying to trace them back to the source and study. So it really is an interesting an interesting field. And hopefully this gave everyone a chance to see just how much uh, statisticians really help us out. Yeah, and think about Indiana Jones, except you actually help people. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Indiana Jones, but he is absolutely the worst possible example of everything he is supposed to portray. <laughs> He's a he's a great adventurer, bad scientist. Yeah, he's a bad scientist. He always says things should be in a museum and never brings them. He sets fire to or destroys countless archaeological ruins. Most of the movies, if he wasn't present, would have ended exactly the same way. The Ark still would have been opened. The Russians still would have gotten the Crystal Skull. Uh, the you know maybe in the one in Temple of Doom, those people got their their jewel back, but I guarantee you most of them still died in abject poverty. So, really, who, who is he helping? Uh, sad. I've, I've been over this before. I have, yes. but... Um, indeed, but indeed. It's an argument... It's an argument for another day. So, that, that pretty much wraps up our... Our episode on getting metaphysical with epidemiology. Santosh, do you have a a just the tip you'd like to share with us? So my just the tip is uh, my my honeymoon, and uh, we went to Ve- Venice amongst other places, and I highly highly recommend it. It's busy. It's crap. It's crazy, but it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and <laughs> this sounds really, really sad, but please go there before the whole damn city uh, drowns. <laughs> uh, there's, a <laughs> there's a phenomenon there called aqua alta, which literally means rising water or high water. And canals of Venice and the streets of Venice were built on water of very very long time ago and it wasn't meant to handle the amount of people and pressure that's sitting on those streets but uh if i had to pick one place which was just fantastic to go and visit in venice uh saint mark square i get a ticket to go and visit the uh the uh, violin quartet or the string quartet um wonderful amazing uh, 
experience to hear Vivaldi's Four Seasons played straight from one of the most, you know, brilliant quartets I've ever heard, and they know it by memory. They don't even read sheet music. Um, It was an absolutely beautiful experience. It's a cheap ticket, you know, but you get to hear all four seasons. Even Frankie Valley. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, even Frankie. Winter, spring, summer, and Frankie. Winter, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you silly, silly person. <laughs> Did you get a chance to visit the Libraria Aqua Alta while you were there? I didn't get to. No. Okay, so it's a Venice bookstore determined to be the self-proclaimed most beautiful bookstore in the world. And, of course, Venice is well known for having a large number of historical and first edition documents for those of you who do like seeing old bookstores and libraries. But uh, one of the things that makes the Libraria Aqua Alta a little bit more interesting is, as you mentioned, due to Venice's constant flooding, the picturesque piles of magazines, maps, and books are all inside bathtubs, waterproof bins, and in one room, a full-size gondola. So the name itself even means the library of high water. So when the local waterways do rise, the whole go- whole place goes a couple inches off the floor that would destroy any other collection. Wow. And even, even their fire escape is a door that leads up and out into a canal. That's awesome. Uh, so do yourself a favor and check out the Libraria Aqua Alta with its floating shelves. It's like being in a watery Diagon Alley. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good way to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And that concludes this episode. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) Me help. With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.